everyone. I'm Debbie Roberts, owner and financial advisor at Property Apprentice. Join us today for the Week in Review, where I talk about current events for the everyday investor and home buyer. Our topics for this week, first up from staff on the 23rd of August, Auckland median rent jumps year on year as population increases. Second topic from good returns on the 21st of August, loosening triple CFA rules might not be enough. Third topic from One Roof, 23rd of August, should house sellers be holding off until after the election day? And fourth topic from News Hub, is home ownership still worth it? Expert weighs in after sobering figures show households spend half their incomes on their mortgage. And fifth topic for this week in review from Good Returns on the 23rd of August, further step to regulation of property managers. So topic number one for this week in review from Stuffed on the 23rd of August, Auckland median rent jumps year on year as population increases. Data from TradeMe's latest rental price index suggests that renters in Auckland might be experiencing the impact of rising demand for rental properties. The median rent across the country remained steady at $620 a week in July, the same as June, but this is $40 higher a week than in July 2022. Auckland saw a year-on-year -year increase of $70 a week, reaching a median of $670 while Statistics New Zealand data indicated a 4.1% year-on-year rise. In July, there was a decrease in both supply and demand, with 3% fewer listings and 2% fewer inquiries compared to June. The colder winter months typically result in a quieter rental market, with expectations that activity will rise during spring. Kiwi Bank's chief economist Jared Kerr noted that high migration rates could further push up rents, given that many migrants are likely to rent. The Reserve Bank adjusted its house price forecasts due to migration effects. Wellington rents remained stagnant at $650 a week since March, which is slightly below the peak in January. In Canterbury, rents increased by $50 a week on a year-on-year -year basis, and the overall rise in living costs was pointed out as a concern for renters. Auckland's rental market specifically felt the impact of population growth. Westpac's chief economist, Kelly Eckhold, stated that migrants often flocked to the Auckland area initially, potentially contributing to increased rental demand. The data suggested that rental price growth was stabilising at a higher level compared to pre-COVID times. Mike Jones, chief economist at BNZ, highlighted the robust population growth and limited supply as factors driving rental inflation. Auckland experienced the most significant reduction in supply over the past year due to population growth, causing the rental vacancy rate to halve in 12 months. That's the largest decrease nationwide. At the end of the day, it is further confirmation of the fact that market rent is driven by supply and demand. We're currently in a period where there's limited supply of rental properties and high demand from tenants. This is helpful for landlords who are facing higher than average interest rates as well as increased tax costs, but obviously it's not good news for tenants. Second topic for this week in review from Good Returns on the 21st of August, loosening triple CFA rules might not be enough. Although changes can be made to the Credit Contracts and Consumer Finance Act or triple CFA regulations, transforming the banking culture could be more challenging, warns Andrew Bailey, National's Commerce and Consumer Affairs spokesman. 
The party intends to cease banks from asking intrusive spending-related queries during loan applications. However, Bailey highlights that while regulatory changes and liability reductions are possible, the triple CFA principles are already partially ingrained within banks. Bailey emphasises that affecting cultural change within banks will be a significant challenge. He aims to refocus the triple CFA back to its original 2020 regulations, which was concentrated solely on high-cost lenders, allowing for more flexibility within set boundaries. This approach would hold lenders accountable if they breach those boundaries. Bailey also discusses the possibility of relaxing penalties for directors and managers under the triple CFA, while ensuring that adequate penalties remain for high-cost lenders who exploit individuals. He acknowledges the need for more balanced liability distribution between directors and management. Bailey criticises the triple CFA's transformation, attributing it to the Ministry of Business, Innovation and Employment, or MB, which expanded the regulations beyond their original intent. He notes that the MB added intrusive requirements, such as inquiries around borrowers' subscriptions, unnecessarily complicating the process. This shift from an economic to a social issue has resulted in reduced lending, impacting vulnerable borrowers who are now seeking loans from less reputable sources. Second-tier lenders have also been negatively affected, as the triple CFA's mandated questions have extended loan assessment times, leading to an increased minimum loan amount due to higher administrative costs. Bailey acknowledges that addressing these issues will take time, and it is part of National's broader financial architecture plan. If you'd like to learn more about investing in property, join me at one of our free events called How to Succeed with Property Investing in 2023. I'll discuss strategies for successful investing from my perspective as a financial advisor, available live online or in person. Check out propertyapprentice.co.nz for upcoming dates and register today. We don't sell property, so it's all about increasing your knowledge to reduce your risk. If you've already been to one of our free events and would like to find out more about how we can help you to reach your financial goals, you can also book a no-obligation phone call or meeting with my husband, Paul Roberts, via the website. And obviously, if you're already a coaching client of ours, all you need to do is reach out to your coach for help. Topic number three, one roof on the 23rd of August, should house sellers be holding off until after election day? Property analysts suggest that vendors who delay selling until after the general election might not see a significant impact on the housing market. Past poll results have had limited influence on the market and only substantial policy changes specifically affecting the housing market would likely cause notable shifts. Experts explain that changes signalled by the National Party, such as reinstating interest deductibility rules and reducing the Brightline test timeframe, would primarily impact investors or those selling investment-type properties. While activity might increase among investors after a potential change in government policies, there's no strong indication that current policies would significantly affect owner-occupiers. Historical data indicates that elections influence the number of property sales, but not necessarily the prices. On average, sales decrease around 6% six months before an election and increase around 6% six months afterwards, mainly due to the uncertainty about the country's direction. Despite this, changes in policies could prompt savvy investors 
to take advantage of a quieter pre-election market to negotiate better prices when there's less competition from other buyers. While the market might see increased activity after a national party victory, experts caution that changes won't be immediate or drastic. It's advised that those considering selling should take advantage of the current low stock levels to attract more attention, as the period after the election might see a rise in listings due to the traditional spring lift and a wait-and-see approach from potential sellers. In other words, there'll be people that'll be sitting on the sidelines waiting to see the results of the election before they look at selling their property, and then if more people list their property for sale, you'll be competing with all of them. So there could potentially be a benefit in listing your property for sale prior to the election, even if it doesn't sell until after the election. The increase in listings might not lead to a sudden surge in buyers because significant market changes are likely to unfold over time rather than immediately following the election. And this fits in with what we've been saying at Property Apprentice for a while. We potentially think that the best buying opportunities could be prior to the election, but we're certainly not expecting to see a rapid increase in prices after the election either. Fourth topic for this week in review from NewsHub, is home ownership still worth it? An expert weighs in after sobering figures show households spend half their incomes on, on their mortgage. Despite new data revealing that New Zealanders spend half their incomes on mortgage payments, experts emphasise that buying a house remains a sound investment. The CoreLogic Housing Affordability Report released recently highlighted that on average, New Zealand households allocated 49% of their income to mortgage payments during the past quarter. A decade ago, the disparity between mortgage payments and rent was less pronounced. In 2013, households spent approximately 20% of their income on rent, compared to 31% on a mortgage. I would like to say that in 2013, the housing market was just entering into a recovery and interest rates were already at a down point. Okay. They'd come off their peaks at that point. So potentially not a fair comparison. By 2018, the gap had widened with 21% going towards rent and 38% towards a mortgage. And obviously by 2018, the housing market had started to increase in value, even though interest rates hadn't increased significantly at that point. The current scenario presents an even larger contrast, as you could expect, with households dedicating 22% of their income to rent and a substantial 49% to their mortgage. CoreLogic New Zealand Chief Property Economist Calvin Davidson suggested that this mortgage-to-income ratio might persist as house prices appear to have reached a plateau. If house prices stabilise or experience slight growth, the prospect of improved housing affordability seems limited. While spending half of one's income on a mortgage might seem challenging, financial advisor and Enable Me founder Hannah McQueen advised that property still holds value as an investment albeit not necessarily as a primary residence. Property investment allows individuals to leverage borrowed funds for asset acquisition, leading to potentially higher capital growth compared to non-property investments. McQueen acknowledged that the situation varies globally. In Europe, for instance, renting and investing in alternative assets is more prevalent than in New Zealand. She stated that this changing perspective could provide new options for those entering the property market. 
McQueen emphasised that buying a property remains advantageous due to the long-term implications of renting during retirement. Renting throughout retirement entails ongoing costs, whereas homeowners who've paid off their mortgages avoid such expenses. She noted that while renting might offer a more affordable lifestyle in the short term, coupling it with suitable wealth strategies like investing in property is crucial for financial security. My thoughts on this, I've got a few thoughts on this actually. So first of all, if you're looking at purchasing a home, you can use KiwiSaver and you might also qualify for some government grants. So check out the Kayanga Ora website to see if you qualify for the government grants or the KiwiSaver withdrawal. Uh, also, there's two things that affect housing affordability. Oh, actually, back to the last thought, I should have written this in so that I could remember what I was going to talk about. But, um, you know, when it comes to buying your home, you can withdraw KiwiSaver. But at this stage, you cannot withdraw KiwiSaver to fund the deposit on an investment property. So if you're going to invest in property, you need to have other cash reserves available to fund the deposit. Um, now, when it comes back to housing affordability, house prices and mortgage interest rates are the two contributing factors. And we've seen a decrease in house prices since November 2021, but we've also seen rapidly increasing interest rates on mortgages. So at the moment, the biggest culprit to housing affordability is the higher than average mortgage interest rates. Now, there's a good chance that we're already at or at least near the peak of this interest rate cycle. So a key point to remember when you're considering buying a home or an investment property in the current market is this. If you can afford the mortgage payments today, it's only going to get easier moving forward because as you pay down the mortgage and interest rates start to fall again, and as you get pay increases over time as well, are you with me? Life gets easier. So this is literally as tough as it gets. But it is also highly likely that we pass the bottom of the property cycle. Property values are going to start increasing again, not necessarily at a rapid rate, but it will happen sooner rather than later. And in some parts of the country, this is already happening. So the longer that you wait, the higher your mortgage is going to be because that's when the house price has the effect on affordability. The most important thing to remember though is that you need to make sure that you're buying the right sort of property for your financial position. If you want help working out what that is, maybe you should seek the help of a financial advisor, preferably one who's not going to try and sell you property so that you can be confident that there's no conflict of interest. Where can you find a financial advisor that doesn't sell property? Propertyapprentice.co.nz Fifth topic for this week in review, and I've got a bonus topic this week as well. Uh, so fifth topic from Good Returns on the 23rd of August, further step to regulation of property managers. A new legislative proposal known as the Residential Property Managers Bill has been introduced to Parliament, aiming to establish a comprehensive regulatory framework for residential property managers and organisations. This bill intends to safeguard the interests of both tenants and property owners within New Zealand's rental market. The proposed regulatory system encompasses multiple facets, including licensing, education prerequisites, industry practice standards, and a complaints and disciplinary framework. While around one third of households in New Zealand rent, the residential property management sector manages approximately half of the residential tenancy market. 
Despite some property managers adhering to professional standards, there is currently no legal requirement for the sector to meet minimum standards of conduct, competency and industry practice. The bill's scope includes individual residential property managers, including real estate agents offering property management services, as well as residential property management organisations. However, private landlords and public landlords, such as Kayama Aura and community housing providers, will not be subject to this regime, as they're already regulated under the Residential Tenancies Act. Now, to be fair, this comment doesn't make sense to me, because as far as I'm aware, Everyone's required to comply with the Residential Tenancies Act, whether they're private landlords, property management companies, or whatever. But industry experts, including the Real Estate Institute of New Zealand, or RINES, highlight the importance of the proposed regulations for maintaining professionalism and providing assurance to both tenants and landlords. And this is where I think it's a really good idea to bring regulation into the industry. It'll get rid of those rogue property managers that don't play by the rules and they leave the landlord and the tenants really exposed. Rhines emphasises the increased complexity of property management due to legislative changes and external challenges, which is making standardised regulations essential for the industry. The regulatory measures include compulsory registration and licensing, training and entry prerequisites, industry practice standards, and a complaints and disciplinary process. Additionally, requirements for appropriate insurance and independent trust accounts are designed to protect both landlords and tenants. The bill is awaiting its first reading and referral to a select committee. If passed, there will be an 18-month preparation period for the regulatory authority to establish systems, followed by six months for residential property managers and management organisations to obtain licences before the new regime takes full effect, which is approximately 24 months after enactment. My only concern about this at this stage is what the unintended consequences of this new regulatory regime could be. Are we going to see increased costs to landlords who choose to use the professional services of a property management company? Probably. Will this cause further rent increases? Potentially. Or will this mean more private landlords could choose to manage their rental properties themselves and then screw things up because there's so many rules and regulations to wrap your brains around that it's literally a full-time job to do it properly if you've got more than one rental? Like I imagine that that could be one of those unintended consequences. Is that going to be good for tenants? No. Is it going to be good for the private landlords who might inadvertently find themselves facing big fines through the tenancy tribunal? No. So my advice is this, if you're a private landlord and you choose to manage your own rental property, make sure that you're fully aware of your legal obligations under the Residential Tenancies Act. The NZPIF, the New Zealand Property Investors Federation, runs a free landlord education program called Rent Skills for their members, free for their members. If you aren't a member of NZPIF, it'll cost you $350. Check with your accountant, but I would imagine that that would be a tax-deductible expense. So if you're not already a member of NZPIF, how do you become a member? Join your local property investors association. Probably going to be less than the cost of 350 bucks if you're not a member.
it can be easy to get confused about what's going on in the property market because it's constantly changing depending on what's happening in the economy, changes with government legislation and buyer sentiment. There's so much data available that it can be really hard to keep up. If you want a quick and easy way to get an up-to-date overview of the property market from someone who isn't trying to sell you a property, register now for one of our upcoming free events called How to Succeed with Property Investing in 2023. As an experienced property investor and licensed financial advisor, I'll share valuable insights and expert tips to help you on your journey. And bring your questions. I'll answer as many of them as I can. Just understand that it'll be general information. I can't give individual financial advice in that sort of forum. Whether you're thinking about buying your first home or if you're already an experienced investor, there'll be something for you at our free events. I'll also tell you more about how we help our clients to achieve their financial goals. So if you're interested in finding out more about what we do, visit propertyapprentice.co.nz today to secure your spot and register for one of our events. Alternatively, you can book a no-obligation phone call or meeting with my husband, Paul Roberts, through our website as well. That's propertyapprentice.co.nz. And a bit of a bonus for this week's podcast You've probably heard in the media recently, there's been quite a bit of commentary around the Brightline test and, uh, and the exclusion for the main home. How if you're not living in that property for more than 12 months, then that gets caught by a Brightline. Now, something that's been really irritating the heck out of me in the media is that uh, Labour politicians have really politicised this. They keep saying that it's a national rule. It's been in place since National introduced the two-year Brightline. Now, this isn't true. This is not true. When National introduced the two-year bright line, you, the home was excluded. It wasn't until, until Labour increased the bright line period that things changed. So if you go to the Inland Revenue website, you will see this. It's, there's a couple of exclusion. Uh, so if you Google bright line property rule and go to the Inland Revenue website, You'll see that there's a section there that says if you're selling a property that's used as your main home acquired before 27th of March 2021. So in that section, it says the Brightline property rule does not tax the sale of a property that's been your main home. You can claim that main home exclusion as long as you've used more than 50% of the property's area as your main home and that you've been in that main home for more than 50% of the time that you owned it. It's either of those is less than 50%, then the main home exclusion doesn't apply. So you'd need to pay tax on any profit. But if you are selling a property that's used as your main home that, and you bought that on or after the 27th of March, 2021, when the bright line was extended to 10 years, there were some changes that Labor put through at the same time as extending that bright line period to 10 years. Now... You can claim the main home exclusion in full if you've used more than 50% of the property's area as your main home. And if you've used that property as your main home for 100% of the time that you owned it, this is any period of up to 12 months where it wasn't used as your main home. But if you didn't use it as your main home for more than 12 months, then you will be taxed in that period. So there's been quite a bit of media coverage around this in the last few days. And like I said, it's really irritated me that Labor keeps saying that this is a national policy because it's not. It was changed when they introduced the 10-year bright line, when Labor extended it to 10 years. 
So this is definitely a new tax policy, and it seems to be something that uh, isn't really getting across in mainstream media, unfortunately. So I think, you know, if you're going to make a decision around voting, it's only fair that you should have all of the facts in front of you. And the facts are that the main home exclusion rule changed when Labor extended the Brightline period to 10 years. Important to note. That's my thoughts for this week in review. Enjoy the rest of your week. Thanks for listening.